faith, hope, inspiration, and edification. Welcome to the Edify Podcast with Billy Hallowell, a show that cuts through the cultural noise to explore the biggest headlines and issues of the day. Let's dive into today's show. Hey, what's going on? Welcome to the Edify Podcast. I'm Billy Hollowell, and we have got a great show for you today. We are welcoming on the Reverend John Revel today. Now, he is a police chaplain. He works in Connecticut, but he works with authorities all over the country. And if you don't know what chaplains do, they really have this this crazy but incredible job. They are there to help police officers. There are also military chaplains and all sorts of different chaplains, chaplains in hospitals. But in this case, when you're talking about police chaplains, these are the people who are on the ground, and they are there to spiritually mentor, guide, befriend, and help officers and cops who are out there doing tough, difficult, seemingly impossible jobs day in and day out. And with all that's been going on in this country, really understanding what is it like to be a police officer, and from the perspective uh, of one of the guys who's out there as a chaplain working with them, what are the challenges? Um, how do we how do we get to a place of peace in America between various communities and the cops who work in them and, and so many other questions? So we're going to be diving into that today. But before we do, we want to go over a couple of the big headlines this week. There's been some really really fascinating stuff happening. Obviously, heading towards a major election in just a few weeks, and the closer we get to that, the crazier things are going to get in America. I think a lot of Christians are looking at the situation and trying to figure out. What do I do? Right. Some people are really supportive of President Trump. Others are very hesitant to be. Others are supporting Joe Biden. You know, we've talked about the story of the evangelicals for Biden group that's out there. And so there's a lot going on, a lot of division um, and a lot of chaos. But there was an interesting study that came out, and this is from George Barna. And he is a researcher, and you may know him. Um, he, I believe, he formed and founded the Barna Group, but he is now actually working on some other fascinating things, the the Cultural Research Center of Arizona Christian University. Um, he is working with them and really found some very intriguing numbers when it comes to abortion. So according to his research, 44% of Christians believe that the Bible is, quote, ambiguous in its teaching about abortion. Another 34% said that abortion is morally acceptable if it spares the mother from financial or emotional discomfort or hardship. Now, this is obviously, you know, some shocking data among Christians, and there's a lot of, of obviously, theories at what's at the base of this, but I'm going to tell you one thing that Barna said. He said, quote, The irony of the reshaping of the spiritual landscape in America is that it represents a post-Christian reformation driven by people seeking to retain a Christian identity. So this idea that the church, perspectives within, at least people calling themselves members of the church, are changing due to the culture, that the culture is driving those changes and that it's actually shifting what people who call themselves Christians believe about a variety of of different issues. Uh, It was also found that 34% of self-identified Christians reject the idea that marriage is defined as being between one man and one woman, and that 40% accept lying as being morally acceptable if it advances a person's interest or protects their reputation. Wow, so there's a lot of data that you can go over to christianpost.com and you can check that out right now. Okay, so for our second story, this is uh, really an interesting one. There are sex trafficking survivors who are suing Nevada 
over-legalized prostitution. They're saying that it actually violates the 13th Amendment. And for those who don't remember, the 13th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, it was ratified in 1865 after the Civil War. And here's what it reads. It says, Neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as a punishment for crime, whereof the party shall have been duly convicted, shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. So this was the amendment that um, did away, that abolished slavery. And so this is the basis of the argument for this particular lawsuit. Again, it's it's three individuals who say that they were sex trafficked and they are suing Nevada. And um, they're, they're claiming that, um, that the state essentially violated the 13th Amendment of the Constitution when it legalized prostitution. And so that's going to be a really interesting case to watch. You can check out the details over at ChristianPost.com. I think, again, you know, there, there are some big, big potential implications for that case, depending what happen, depending on what happens. I mean, it'll be interesting to see uh, what happens there. And last but not least, I want to dive into Michael Brown's recent op-ed, My Message to Pro-Life Evangelicals for Biden. You can find this over on ChristianPost.com. Now, Dr. Michael Brown is known for his theological stances. He's always got very well-reasoned positions. And in this case, he is responding to the Pro-Life Evangelicals for Biden movement, which I talked about earlier on this show and in other episodes of the show. Now, I'm just going to read how he concludes this piece. But as you can imagine, he goes through and sort of dismantles and his view why this pro-life, you know, support for Biden doesn't really work. You know, why why being a pro-life evangelical and supporting Biden doesn't add up in his view. And here's what he says at the end of the piece. With all due respect, I say this. Do not talk to me about biblical balance while urging evangelical followers of Jesus to vote for the party that justifies the slaughter of more than 60 million babies in their mother's womb and will fight tooth and nail to codify Roe versus Wade. Any mention of biblical balance that doesn't start with concern for the shedding of innocent blood is so far out of balance it is no longer biblical. So you can check that piece out over at ChristianPost.com. It's pretty popular right now, and it's uh, it, it's a it's a difficult read, not because it's not good. It's it's fascinating, but it's a tough issue, and this is something that again is dividing a lot of Christians. This issue of abortion and the pro life movement, we know very clearly what the Bible says about this, and so. When we talk about the fact that people are confused, that Christians are confused about what the Bible says, they feel the Bible isn't being clear on it, um, there are numerous verses that tell us that life begins in the womb, that life really begins at conception, that before we are even conceived, God knows who we are going to be, what's going to happen to us, and what his plan is for our lives. And so there isn't a confusion there, but if people feel confused— it's time for us to to speak about it, to talk about it. And so I'd encourage you to go and read, quote, my message to pro-life evangelicals for Biden. It's a piece you will find over at the Christian Post. It's christianpost.com. And we will be right back. And when we get back, we will have the Reverend John Revel on the Edify podcast. Stay tuned. This podcast is part of the Edify podcast network. Edify is a faith-inspiring app that brings together thousands of the best Christian podcasts in one place for your listening enjoyment. Cut through the noise and grow your faith by diving into the world's top Christian podcasts today. Download the Edify app for free from the App Store or Google Play or by going to edify.app. That's E-D-I-F-I dot app. 
We are back with more of the Edify podcast. And I have to tell you guys that there are some other shows that you need to listen to right now. You need to go to your app store. And if you don't yet have the Edify app, it's E-D-I-F-I. Go and download it. And you can hear thousands of Christian podcasts. But we have two original shows right now that I really want you guys to hear, in addition to this one, of course. We have Doubting It with Charlotte Pence Bond. That is Vice President Mike Pence's daughter. And it's all about faith and doubt. It's an incredible show. We also have Politely Rude with Abby Johnson. You might know her as a pro-life leader. and uh, But she talks about a whole bunch of great topics in her show. Again, it's Politely Rude. Both of those shows are available right now on the Edify Podcast Network and on the Edify app. Now, with that said, I promised you guys a fascinating conversation with a chaplain. His name is the Reverend John Revel. And with no further ado, I want to welcome him to the Edify Podcast right now. Well, John, thanks so much for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. So you have a unique position, um, and you are a police chaplain, and you've been doing this for for years now, for a long time. And I have so many questions for you, because when I look at culture and where we are right now, and obviously there's a lot of tension between certain communities and cities and towns and police officers, we've had these events unfold that have sparked national controversy. And then we have the day-to-day of just how hard it is to be a police officer. And so I guess we'll start with the current issues. And I would just love to hear from your experience, how are police officers who you're working with processing the uncertainty and the chaos we've seen lately among police and communities? There's no doubt there's uh, incredible levels of of frustration and uh, struggles right now. Um, The and one of the points that I try and help everybody to understand is every police officer I've dealt with uh, sees what happened with George Floyd, and they're absolutely horrified. Uh, the statement that has gone out many times in recent days is uh, uh, the only people who hate a bad cop more is a good cop. Right. Whenever a situation like that arises, it's like, oh my gosh, how could that have happened? And that's that's the expression that I got so many times when they saw that uh, rank and file police officers are incredible human beings. There's no other segment of uh, American society right now in which people trained for six, nine months to focus all of their energies on saving lives and protecting innocent people. And that's, that is wired into their DNA. They are there to save lives. And for them to be characterized as being evil or out to do harm to the general public is just so contrary to their makeup. So it must they, be painful. I mean, that must be painful for these guys and these women. Extremely painful and extremely frustrating. And it is so discouraging to them because number one, they've committed their lives to doing this, but they also understand that they could sacrifice their lives in the course of doing that. And what makes it even more amazing is they're willing to sacrifice their lives, even for the people who would do them harm. Mm. That's the way they are. And so they're just wholesale grouped together in one category and say, all cops are evil. It's very painful for them. 
Well, and it does a disservice because the the reality is that you know, as you were saying, everybody looked at that of that at that situation was horrified by it. There are situations that unfold; they make national news now, and and things are a little different because if if that happens, the minute it happens, you almost immediately have protests. Which listen, if something happens that shouldn't have happened and somebody loses their lives, of course you're going to have protests. Now, there's a difference between protests and then and rioting and chaos, yeah. right? Yeah, and how it, for me, just looking as an outsider, I'm not a police officer. My dad was worked in a prison for for 30 years. And so it was a different side of seeing that world. But how do people process this? Are you getting a, a lot of extra people coming to you or maybe more often in, in that world of police officers saying, hey, we need some guidance on this. We need some spiritual help. I mean, what has been the volume of that since all of this kicked up? There's uh, people don't approach me like a counselor. Um, I'm more of a friend and they don't set up uh, appointments to come see me in my office as much as uh, we'll have lunch together or coffee together. And, and so it's a very informal kind of relationship. But over the last four months, I've had just so many cops one-on-one -on -one open up and just share their frustration and shake their head and say uh, the overreaction uh, on a national level is not only making it more difficult for police officers to do their job, but it's putting the public at a greater risk. And it is uh, actually putting police officers at a, at a greater risk. Uh, what the general public doesn't appreciate sometimes is that there are situations that arise that require force. Now, people who are willing to break the law don't generally just comply when they're told to stop. <laughs> right, right, right. And, and uh, all too often, when law enforcement tries to interrupt a criminal in the process, they become violent. And the general population seems to lose sight of that. And so most of the cops that I know that have been on the job for 15, 20 years, they have multiple injuries. They could retire with medical uh, retirement benefits because they've been injured in the course of, of, um, of the job. But they don't like that. They don't like to use force. They don't like to put uh, the general public at risk. They don't like to put themselves at risk. And so it is, it's a, one of the most challenging jobs that a person can imagine. Yeah. I can't, I mean, I can't imagine how, how hard it is. And, you know, I think what's interesting is that the conversation nationally shifted to defunding the police, you know, which it takes different forms depending on who you're talking to, but it might mean reallocating money and one of the fascinating elements to me as an outsider and as a journalist kind of looking in is the is the question that comes to mind, you know, if we feel as though there are certain and, and by the way, I mean, for anyone listening and you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but every police department is different. You have towns and villages and cities. And so to have this monolithic conversation about police is not an easy thing to do because every department is different. Right. With a different makeup and all of that. So um but I've often wondered, you know, is the solution to just automatically take money away? Let's say there's a department that has some structural issues and needs some change. Wouldn't you want to understand those issues before you started making those calls for yeah. taking money away? I mean, I don't know. What are, what are your thoughts on that? Well, Billy, I think you nailed it. The uh, no town, uh, no two towns are exactly the same. And for somebody to come and say, we've got a, uh, a surefire formula that's going to work across the board in, in every state, uh, in every town, in every state is uh, not just simplistic, it's ridiculous because not every police department 
is faced with the same kind, kinds of challenges. And most of what we see on the media is related to large metropolitan police departments. And most of what you've seen in the news is not uh, reflective or is not taking place in some of the smaller towns, yet the smaller towns are being grouped in uh, with yeah. the, the large ones. And so it's, uh, it is unrealistic for a state to pass legislation uh, that covers every police department in uh, every municipality in the state when not every police department needs to be adjusted. There are, honestly and fairly, there are some police departments that need to be uh, opened up and have some adjustments made. And I've seen them, I work with police departments across the country. So it's, it's very real, it's a very uh, genuine need in some cities. Yeah. But it's not across the board. Well, that's the, yeah. I mean, it's like anything else, you know, you can't make these sweeping, you know, yeah. de declarations about all police or, you know, every department, cause it's all different. Um, what was it for you that drew you to this line of work? Because this is not an easy job for you being, you know, being a chaplain and dealing with what you deal with is not easy. And I want to get back, I want to get back to cops as well and what they see and deal with, but what made you go this route? Well, honestly, Billy, it was never a dream. It was never a desire. It was never a goal. Um, I was pastoring in Stanford, Connecticut. Uh, we had moved from Nashville. Uh, I've been with uh, denomination for about 15 years and I was ready to get back on the front lines. And so uh, we accepted a pastorate at the Baptist Church in Stanford. And early on, I just wanted to meet the chief. Now, I, uh, I had never thought about being a chaplain, uh, but I'd always had a, a great relationship with both military and police departments. And so I wanted to meet the police chief. And as in that first meeting, and this was February of 2012, I was talking to the chief and I said, my dad was a Marine in the South Pacific in World War II. And he was also a cop all before he became a pastor. And I said, so I've always had a great relationship between uh, police officers and military. A couple of minutes later, he said, would you be our chaplain? And I said, uh, I guess, I, sounds like fun. And so I did. Never thought anything of it. And a couple of months later, one of our officers went down in a horrific accident and almost died. And he said, would you go there? He had a wife and three small children. So I went and that's when I started connecting. And just a few months later, Sandy Hook happened. And I was with our guys from Stanford Police Department and multiple other police departments for the next two weeks. And, uh, and I experienced one of the most traumatic uh, kinds of events that is imaginable that nobody wants to imagine. But at the same time, I saw police officers doing their jobs in an extremely professional way and uh, bearing that burden. And so over the course of uh, the next three years, I became more and more ingrained with the police officers and they became to trust me. They started calling me brother. And in the South, everybody calls each other brother. But up here, that cops don't do that very often. And somebody right. says, idiot, they're, they've welcomed you in. And so uh, the bond started growing. And, and uh, five years ago, we launched Lifeline Chaplaincy as a 501c3 to make it possible for me to do it on a full-time basis. And since, because of police suicides and some other uh, traumatic events, it's grown to where I'm official uh, chaplain for another uh, police department for the Connecticut State Police. And then I'm I'm serving as a uh, resource for five other departments in the area. 
I mean, that's incredible. And you brought up something there that I think is important to talk about. I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, I think it was last year, it was 2019, that there were more NYPD, New York Police Department officers who died by suicide than there were on the front lines working. I believe yep. that's correct. So yep. that's correct. What, what is driving that? What is driving this high rate of suicide among among police officers? Um, well, it some of it has to do with the the nature of where they're working and what they're doing. Um, New York City is, I think, reflective of the nation because I think three times as many police officers across the country died from suicide as uh, died from a uh, felonious assault, uh, a, not just death in the line of duty, but uh, an act of homicide on the part of a criminal. But in Connecticut, I've, uh, in our part of Connecticut, our two counties, over the last three years, the suicide, suicide rate among police officers is three times the per capita rate across the nation. Wow. And, yeah, and it, it's, it really is sobering. Uh, and so to your question of why, a lot of people don't realize that police officers deal with the deepest, darkest evils that can possibly be conceived in the mind of a person. Yeah. And consistently and daily, they're seeing this, many of them. All the time, every day. Uh, a friend of mine, uh, one of the cops, uh, she said that if you look at it like a sidewalk, a finely manicured sidewalk, uh, as you're walking down, you see the nice trimming on either side and you see the uh, the flowers that grow on either side. And you want to think that's the way life is. But if you were to pick up the concrete and look underneath, you see all kinds of insects and vermin and, and ugliness. The cops have to deal with what's underneath the sidewalk. And while the rest of society is dealing with what's going on on top, they're dealing with child pornography and having to prosecute the, uh, the criminals. They're dealing with sexual assault of children. Just here in our county, in town, there were, within a couple of years, there were two incidents where uh, three, four-year-old girls were sexually abused by babysitters or, oh. uh, or adults. And the general public doesn't hear that. And so they're, they're taking on all of this darkness and in all too many cases, there's not a faith outlet for them to, to deal with it, uh, to process it. And yeah. Can I ask you, just as you're describing this, because one of the things that has crossed my mind, you brought up Sandy Hook, and I think this is an example to give, and you may be able to speak to this, but you know, the public is presented with, here's this horrific event that happened, here are the details, and as you wait... You know, the details come in. Here are the individuals who lost their lives. And the public marinates on this tragedy, on this news, and they're watching it, and everybody's so affected by it. And people are visibly affected by something they haven't seen. But yet, when the doors of that school open and people have to go in and investigate it, it's these police officers who are walking into those rooms. And I don't want to be graphic, so I won't be. But they're taking the bodies out of those rooms. They're seeing – they're actually seeing it. And – I had not really ever thought about that, to be honest with you, until a couple of years ago when I was interviewing a chaplain and talking about this. And, you know, just that to me, that alone, you know, and I'm not just talking about the suicide, but the, the general mental impact that that has on a person. These are human beings, no matter how much training they have, right? Um, 
what have you seen in terms of PTSD? Some of these other things, maybe, I don't know if even that specific event you could speak to, but big events like that, um, that are, you know, just horrible. Yeah, it is horrible. And if, if a police officer is willing to take the time to talk about it, it's, it's possible to get some relief. Uh, and that's, that's a key point, you know, are they willing to, to talk about it? A lot of times there's this self-imposed uh, restriction to say, I'm, I should be able to handle it. I'm man enough. I should be able to, to soldier through. But whenever that happens, it's, it is self-destructive and it starts a downward uh, spiral. Uh, but uh, one of the points that I made is while Sandy Hook was a, a, a huge event, police officers have to do, deal with miniature versions of that several times throughout the course of their lives. Uh, there was in nearby town uh, this summer, there was a, a father who took the life of his five-year-old and six-year-old son and hung them in the window for everybody out in the street to see and then hung himself. So it was a murder-suicide. And the police officers and the EMTs in the medical examiner, they have to process those babies, those children. And most of them are parents themselves. And so for a parent to go through that kind of situation, it is as horrific as you could ever imagine. And it takes a toll. There's no getting around it. Yeah, I mean, I just, I can't, I can't imagine it. And and then having families and having your own kids and have just the mental impact of all of that. Um, let me let me circle back a little bit, and then I want to talk about your your book series. Um, but you know, how do we get to a place of solving? And I would imagine you talk to some police officers who have ideas of that. But you have this tension, and it's not everywhere; it's in certain communities. But you have this newfound, in some areas, tension between the community and the police, this idea that the police are evil, that they're out to get people, that there's this implicit bias, that they hate certain groups of people. And this has become something that is widespread in this country in different pockets. How do we get to a place of alleviating that and starting to pick up the pieces and fix some of that? Yeah. Um, and that is a, a key question and an excellent point. I think what some uh, Christ followers have forgotten is the Lord's priority on being a peacemaker. Um, and I didn't really appreciate the significance of that until the last few years. But we have a lot of people talking about peace and wanting peace and peace walking and peace uh, complaining. And you don't see a lot of people taking tangible steps to make peace. Right. Um, back uh, four years ago, five years ago now in September, um, a door opened uh, with a Fortune 500 company to start involving uh, police officers in uh, home construction projects in low-income areas. Uh, it was a Fortune 500 company in Stanford and, and they asked if, this was in the tensions following the Black Lives Movement's first uh, inaugural activities in their marches and the tensions. And the senior vice president said, what if we get cops involved in this? And I said, I think it's a great idea. And so we did. And then that, that company bought out another company and they grew and became a Fortune 70 company and they had the opportunity to do it across the country. And they said, would you be our liaison to do it with police departments across the country? And I said, absolutely. And we called it building community. 
And the strategy was to bring police officers and community members together for a dinner on Friday night, just for fellowship, no lecturing, no saying you need to change this. It's just to have fellowship and have a good time. And then the next day, the police officers are involved in the community doing a repair project on a home. Mm-hmm. And it was incredible success. Our first one was in Charlotte, North Carolina, just six months after their riots. Their riots were in, uh, in the fall of 2016. And so early April of 17, we were doing it. And it had an immediate, observable, tangible uh, very dramatic impact on the community where you have police officers from the Charlotte Mecklenburg Police Department and the chief himself showed up working side by side with uh, community members to do a repair project. And what we found was when two people voluntary, and this is, this is key, when two people voluntarily break bread together and then sweat together, it tears down barriers and builds bridges. Absolutely, and that's amazing. We applied that formula that year. I ended up having uh, eight different events all across the country, and uh, including in Ferguson. The Lord opened the door for Ferguson, Missouri, and it has grown in uh, 30 months. We ended up doing 23 events in uh, some of the large metropolitan areas, uh, Cleveland, St. Louis, uh, three cities in the St. Louis metropolitan area, and consistently. And what I do is, and this is important for everybody to remember, what I do is in, in those dinners, I share when a police officer shows up at a scene, it's rarely because they've been invited to the birthday party. Right. And so when they get out of their vehicle, they have to be ready for literally any potentiality. They have to be ready for people to shoot at them. And usually those scenarios are not very uh, warm, enjoyable, warm, fuzzy kinds of things. And so the community sees them and they see them with their game face on. And by the same token, when the police get out of the car, they see this segment of the community at its worst. And it's easy to draw the conclusion that these people are like this all the time. When you have a dinner between police officers and community members, and we do a silly icebreaker event that uh, a cop is at every single table and they're competing against all the other tables and almost instantly the the barriers come down and they start relaxing and, and laughing and talking and competing. And uh, in St. Louis, uh, a lieutenant was at one table with his team and the pastor of the church. We always do these in, in churches because the churches have direct line to the, the community. So the pastor is at this table and the lieutenant shouts over and says, you're, you're cheating. And he goes, oh my gosh, I just accused the pastor of cheating. I'm going to hell. And the whole place erupted in laughter. And by the end of the evening, it was like a family reunion. They were all together. And I yeah. see this all across the country. And it, That's amazing. It destroys stereotypes. And uh, the chief in, in Charlotte, uh, North Carolina, said something that stuck with me. He says, it's hard to hate face-to-face. Yeah. Well, when you get to know people, too, it's, you know, yeah. I think... You know, and right now in this country, we have a much broader problem that's feeding this too. The broader problem is the the us versus them all the time with everything, right? And the idea that, and you know this as a Christian and as a pastor and as a chaplain, I mean, I live in New York, 99% of the people around me don't agree with me about anything, let my faith, what I believe about politics, like that's just, and that's fine. I think it's been healthy to kind of walk into that um, and, you know, deal for me, that's been good, but I think a lot of people are now in their silos and they're not used to being 
with other yeah. people and we demonize other people. And so I think you see that with police officers quite a bit and with the community, you know, yeah. just the, what you just described. You know, we would never say a person wearing a hoodie is going to be suspect of committing a crime. We wouldn't say that because it's just because uh, a young man wearing a hoodie robs a store doesn't mean people want hoodies. <laughs> right, right. By token, just because somebody's wearing a uniform doesn't mean they're out to uh, harm the general public. There may yes. be some instances, and this is important for people to remember, there are conservatively over 700,000 sworn full-time officers in the United States. The Washington Post, which is by no means uh, a, a bastion of conservative ideology, they started tracking deaths by police officers a few years back. And in 17 and 18, the total they came up with was roughly 1,000. And, and plenty of people say that's a, an extreme exaggeration, but let's just go with that number. 1,000 people died at the hands of police officers. When you look at the 700,000 officers, they're involved in millions of incidents every week. Well over a hundred and some say multiple hundreds of millions of incidents and arrests every year. And you compare that to thousand deaths. Now, every death is tragic. You know, we're creating right. image. And so the loss of life is always tragic. But it's a small number compared. By comparison, right. uh, out of that 700,000, 99 point something, something percent Police officers never involve themselves in a situation that requires deadly force. And when you look at it, and I saw one report that said 45,000 incidents of police officers being assaulted by civilians. Listen, this is, and I'm going to say this, and I don't really care if it gets me in trouble, but I'll say it. I won't ask you to say it. I mean, I don't even think it's that controversial. If some... If I'm watching a video, now I'm not talking about George Floyd, I'm not talking about clips we've seen that we know, but if I'm watching a video and I'm looking at a situation and I'm seeing that video, I'm a journalist, like in my mind, I'm a journalist, I'm wondering, what am I not seeing? And I yeah. always tell people this, I can, and people will get mad, why, why aren't you standing up and saying something about whatever situation? Well, I don't know if that situation is what you're telling me. For instance, you know, we were told in the tragic situation involving Michael Brown, and that was, it's sad, the whole entire situation is sad, but we were told that hands up, don't shoot was something that happened. And it was a narrative that was, was said repeatedly and is still said. And there was an investigation on the part of the federal government that found that in their investigation, that was not something that happened. And so that was the whole narrative. And I think it's, now, whether or not it happened, and there's an investigation saying it didn't, we don't know. So I'm very careful. And I think we all have to be careful, whether it's, you know, judging people committing a crime or whether it's the police responding to have yeah. all the information before we react to something. I think that's very important, Billy, uh, for people on all sides to remember, just because I hear something doesn't mean it's true. And right. the, the shooting that took place in, in Charlotte, North Carolina, the tweet that went out was the the individual was sitting in his car, reading his Bible, minding his own business, and the cops came up and shot him. Well, come to find out, he was not reading his Bible. He was armed. He did pull his, his gun out. But the tweet went out, and it could not be pulled back in, and people responded to that, that tweet, which found out, and it was confirmed later, was not an accurate tweet. We... Yeah. My father used to say, well, my father said a lot of things, but uh, <laughs> one of the things that he said was, 
and I never appreciated it when I was young, he says, don't believe anything you hear or anything you read in only half of what you see. Yeah. And yeah. I, I thought back then I thought that's pretty cynical. If as a 10 year old, I don't know what cynical meant, but, but then over the years, I realized there are all kinds of people who will say all kinds of things and they're not necessarily committed to the truth. And, and that's yeah, across the board, yeah. that's, uh, all all polit political arms have the expertise of making a statement and it may not be absolutely false but it may not have the whole picture and people get all up in arms uh, you see this in every effective narrative absolutely absolutely be careful it's it's incredibly important and videos if we don't have the full video of what happened before during and after you know, I think we had that with the George Floyd case to be honest. We, we knew, we saw enough of the video. You didn't need to see any more than what you saw. But in a lot of these cases, you have situations where you're seeing snippets of something. You're not seeing what led up to it. I'm not saying the cops didn't do anything wrong. What I'm saying, we don't know, and we have to be careful. And actually, as Christians, and this is the part that has disturbed me the most, for us to act, and I'm guilty, of, we're all guilty of doing this, for us to act without knowing the full picture and the full story is yeah. actually a violation of what we should be doing, which is waiting and, you know, having yeah, we, effects. We are called uh, to follow the person who says that he is the way, the truth, and the life. So we are to be people of the truth. And it's important to make sure we understand what the truth is before we take action. But taking it a step further, one of the things that has occurred to me in recent days is, I mentioned being peacemakers, but I think as Christ followers, we've lost sight of his priority of being gentle. You, know, you look at the fruit of the spirit, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, the beatitudes, uh, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are those who are meek or those who are gentle. And we don't have to get up in arms and get ready to fight and, and uh, take on somebody. And honestly, scripture identifies that kind of rage as the, the fruit of the flesh in Galatians yeah. chapter five. And so I think it, this is a good time for God's people to step back and say, wait a second, I'm supposed to reflect the character of Christ. Yeah. And Christ was gentle and he was self-sacrificing. And he said, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. And going a step further, and I know you've written on this, it's important that we remember other people are not the enemy. There is an enemy, and he is alive, and he is active, and he is trying to destroy. But he's the enemy. People are not the enemy. And we're called to love people, especially, uh, particularly if they are doing something that's uh, a threat to us, because Jesus did that. And Jesus died for the people who were killing him. Right. And it's such an important reminder that we forget that we forget. We forget it when we're having political debates. We we also forget that, you know, that Ephesians six, you know, that this is just we assume everything is this battle over flesh and blood, that we're just fighting with each other when no. there's something so much deeper going on that affects culture and people and you Absolutely. know, across the board. And with all of that said, as we close out here, I wanted to ask you about Rahab, your book, The Testimony of Rahab, and what and what you're writing, because you've got this amazing series diving into um, individuals in the Bible. So talk to us a little bit about that. It's, uh, it's a series. I started on this uh, about 18 years ago, and then I set it aside, I set it aside uh, and got involved. 
But all of this, it starts with Rahab, but the series uh, covers Gideon, Jehoshaphat, Isaiah, and Habakkuk. And each of these individuals were in life-threatening or culture-threatening situations where they were facing the prospect of total devastation and annihilation. But in the course of it, they all found uh, principles of truth that were saving for them. I mean, they were all saved physically, but there were components where it actually helped them to survive and it exercised their faith. I've done it in a first-person narrative. So Rahab is actually telling her story of what led to her becoming a prostitute. Uh, and at the end of each of these accounts, there are the lessons. So it's very bibliocentric. I mean, it's designed to equip God's people to have some, some solid tools on how do you face the prospect of crisis? How do you gear up for, things are not like they used to be. Things are- <laughs> in, Say that again, yeah. Unless people haven't noticed that, just, just to remind you, things are not the way they used to be. We are at a, a time of upheaval that I don't think we've seen since World War II. And uh, a lot of Christians are saying, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. And these characters, were real people who had real fears and real struggles. And this series is designed to show that, but also to show God's faithfulness in the course of all of, uh, all of it, that God is a God who not only is loving and powerful, but he's got a good plan. And he's going to accomplish that plan, whether it seems obvious to us or not. And that's a message that you know we all need. That's a message police officers need. That's a message everybody needs. I think you know, culture, culture is going to get a lot more crazy, I think, in very I short. Think I think you're right. <laughs> yeah, so this is what we need. And you need to be able to look back to, to truth. There's so many people right now, you know, I saw Hillary Clinton had said um, this week that, you know, young people are leaving the church because of judgment. And I thought, well, yeah, there's judge. Everyone can be judgmental because we're all human beings and we can be sinful. Not all judgment is bad either, but that's a whole other conversation. But I thought, man, people are leaving the church because, or not even joining the church because when it doesn't look any different from the world, why would you want to be a part of it? And I think there's a lot of that confusion going on, but luckily there are so many great churches and there's people like you who are writing on truth and pointing people back to, to actual human beings who existed and lived yeah. and can teach us lessons. So I love yeah. that. And the people who read uh, each of these characters, they will be able to relate to and say, wait a second, I know what she was going through, or I know what he was going through. Gideon is going to focus on a person who struggled with PTSD and moral injury. Uh, yeah. uh, I believe that's why he was so fearful because he saw his brothers die at the sword of the, the Gideons. I, I mean, the uh, Midianites. And so each person, I think the reader can say, I, I know what they're going through because I'm going through that. And so it's, it shows that they were real people and that God's truth is for real people. It's not for superstars and superheroes up there. God's truth is for real people. I love that. Well, listen, thank you so much for joining us today. We'll have to have you back. I, there's so much more to talk about on this, and I, I really appreciate your time. I, I would love to come back, and I thank you for having me with you.
That was the Reverend John Revel, and he really unpacked a lot. I mean, there's so much work we have to do in this country, and I think as Christians we need to lead the charge on having those positive conversations, finding the solutions, and leading with love, truth and love. Those are the two essential components that we are called to. And so I hope you guys will tune in next week for another episode. In the meantime, if you have not yet downloaded the Edify app, head over to edify.app in your browser. Also, you can head over to the App Store, E-D-I-F-I. Whether it's Android or Apple, you can download this app, listen to thousands, literally thousands of Christian podcasts. So we are super excited to have you do that. And I cannot wait for next week. We will be back with another great episode of the show. Thanks for listening to the Edify podcast. For more transformational and faith-inspiring podcasts, head over to edify.app, where you can stream thousands of Christian shows right now. And for convenience on the go, download the Edify podcast app today from the Apple and Google Play stores and at edify.app.